Well, if you would, turn to Colossians chapter 3. And if you've just joined us, we're moving through this brief epistle, this short epistle, nestled in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul. As you do, I want to welcome Tom and Betsy Wood. Where are you guys? Raise your hands. Oh, there you are. It's so good to have you. They are with Samaritan Purse, and they are heavily involved with that ministry, and we are just grateful to have you here, and thank you for all that you're doing for the cause of Christ. I know that Franklin Graham has issued a, a day of prayer today to be praying for our country, and we need to be doing that. So thank you for your, your ministry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you that indeed our all in all is your Son, Christ. And this text highlights that, and we're going to see that today as we move through a rather somewhat difficult passage because it, it is convicting. <laughs> Lord, move Hophetus out of the way. Allow your word to speak. Thank you for these ancient words that are tried and true because they stem from you. For as Paul stated, all scripture is God-breathed. You have ordained it. And so, Lord, we know that our encounter with your word today will change our hearts, and we pray to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You realize that nearly 4% of the average American home per year, their budget, 4% of their budget is spent not on entertainment, not on food, but on clothes. <laughs> In fact, I was reading some stats. The average U.S. family spends $1,800 per year on clothing. And the age bracket that spends the most is 48 to 54. I thought that had to be wrong. It has to be teenagers. But okay, that's, we're buying it for the teenagers. So there it is, right? And no wonder the apparel industry is worth $2.4 trillion. Clothes are important. In fact, I won't have a raise of hands, but how many of you went to this morning to your closet saying, what am I going to wear? Right? You know, mm, I don't like how that feels. Oh, this looks good. Right? We spend a lot of time with the physical clothing, and Paul takes us and says there's something far more significant than physical, it's spiritual clothing. He uses some imagery here today that we're going to see about putting off and putting on. And it's, it's terms that are used for putting on apparel, changing clothes, etc., and there's some misnomers that have circulated with this new man in clothing throughout the centuries, and hopefully we can rectify some of those thoughts today as we go to the text. It's a two-part series. Next week, we're going to look at, starting at verse 12, more of the idea of putting on. But today, we're going to deal with the filthy five and the slimy six, all right, as we move through this text, all right? So just bear with us as we move through it and we look at this. If you have the notes in front of you, you'll notice that the first bullet point is our apparel must be updated. Paul gives three negative commands in verse 5 and verse 8 and verse 9. Uh, someone jokingly stated this morning, uh, after looking at the text, I was sure, wasn't sure whether I was going to stay for the sermon. <laughs> it is a bit of a Debbie Downer. These are things you need to be avoiding. And he says in verse 5, put to death. Now, this hinges on what we've already seen earlier in chapter 3. 
But why? Why do we put to death? Because we have died with Christ. Look at Colossians 3.3. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And we talked about that last week, what it means to be hidden with Christ. But Romans 6, Paul highlights the same thing, that we have died to the enslavement of sin. Oh, the remnant still remains, <laughs> right? Uh, the believer is still in the world, in a mortal body, and is exposed to sinful temptations. But Paul says, be who you are. And who are you? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are in Christ. You have died with Christ. You're buried with Christ. I wrote down, unfortunately, many individuals view the Christian life as if it's neutral. And we have one on one shoulder is the demon telling us, oh, you shouldn't do this. You should do this. And you got an angel over here. And so there's this tug of war with our mind. No, that's not what Paul's saying. It's not neutral. You're identified with Christ. This is your new identity. And so in your notes, I have a follower of Jesus. We should see our new identity in Christ. The struggle becomes secondary when we realize who we are in Jesus. Our life is in Him means, in quoting uh, Daryl Bach in his article on this, he states that sin is no longer automatically the victor in the struggle. Before knowing Jesus as your Savior, you couldn't help but sin. You were enslaved to sin. You did its bidding. But now that you are in Christ... You've been set free, and you can be victorious. That's what, what Paul deals with in Romans 6 through 8, right? In Romans 6, he says we've been justified. We've been declared right before God. And then chapter 7, he goes, oh, but I struggle. I do the things I shouldn't do, the things I do do, I don't do. And you know, on he goes, you know, that whole chapter 7, 8 is the solution. What is an 8? It's through the power of the Spirit. And God transforming us more and more to his image. I was married a little bit later in life. And, you know, being single, there's certain things you just did that I didn't do when I got married. I didn't go to White Castle every other day now that I'm married. I didn't, you know, I, I used to work from, I'd go to the campus at 7 a.m. and I wouldn't get home till 11 p.m. You, you don't do that when you're, you're married. All right, uh, um, uh, Saturdays I spent at Lowe's. I couldn't do that anymore. That's okay, right? My clothes used to pile up on the bed. I don't dare leave my socks out now, right? That was this state. Now I'm in this state. And Paul says, you were once this, but now you're this in Christ. And so he goes, why would you put on the clothes of the old man? The things that identified those who, well, of the past. In fact, look what he says. Put to death, and, and this is, uh, I'm reading out of the Net Bible, the New English Translation. The next phrase is very difficult. Some scholars want to argue he's talking about members of, the bo of your body. And, and, you know, Jesus talks about if your eye offends you or, or your, your foot or leg or arm, I mean, your hand. Well, I don't think that's the case here. And I like how the Net Bibles rendered it. It says, put to death whatever in your nature belongs to the earth. Those old tendencies, you need to slay those suckers. You don't need to be wearing those clothes anymore. Those need to go out. And notice, then he lists them, these old tendencies, things that they used to be identified with. 
And this laundry list is not foreign to first century writings. You can find a whole list of vices or virtues. And in Paul's writings, we see them several places, don't we? Ephesians 5 is one location, uh, Galatians 5. There's various areas in his writings where he gives a laundry list of the dirty dozen, the nasty nine or whatever. And here he gives us a list of five. He then is going to give us another list in verse 8 of 6. And then he's going to give us five positive ones, which we'll look at next week and starting in, in verse 12. But these laundry lists, there's several characteristics you want to watch for as you read Paul's writings. First of all, the lists are, are inconsistent. In other words, the, the vices vary from list to list. Now, there are some that surface on all of them, such as sexual immorality, but they do vary. Secondly, the lists seem to reflect, when they're used by Paul, for an immediate context. So what we suspect, what scholars suspect, is what he's highlighting, he knows is an issue with this audience. <laughs> this whole thing about lying and greed is highlighted in great detail in this passage, which seems to suggest it's a problem in the church. Third, the lists are set within the framework of God's judgment. It looms. You notice he says, you know, in Greek, which he says in verse 6, you are the sons of disobedience and the wrath of God is going to become. You see this time and time with the, the, the laundry list of vices. God's judgment is looming. It's there. God is not going to tolerate this. And finally, these lists are not designed as a new law. Rather, they are the characteristics of where you are. So, for instance, if you're in the state of singleness, these are often some characteristics, not all the time. These are some characteristics when you're married. Here you go to White Castle. Here you don't, right? Unless you want everyone to enjoy it. <laughs> you got the idea, right? And so Paul, in his first list of the filthy five, I'm calling them, there in verse 5, notice he moves from what is outwardly demonstrated to what is inward. It's very interesting. And let's, let's move through this list. The first of these, as you see, is sexual immorality. When Paul is using this term, he's, he's referring to sexual irregularity in general. In other words, any sexual context, contact outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. Marriage, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage... Uh, anything but a man and a woman, you get the idea. And again, the sexual immorality is the top of the, the list in, in many of Paul's writings. 1 Thessalonians 4, those who know Jesus are to abstain from sexual immorality. And so Paul says, you're to, to put off, take off these clothes that are associated with the old man. And one of those is sexual immorality. This should be foreign to you in your new identity as Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you notice he says sexual immorality, impurity. This term, uh, yes, it entails sexual immorality, but it's a much broader term than this. It entails the lustful nature of even the use of, of possessions to fulfill your sexual ends. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. 
And so he said, what clothes are you to take out of your drawer and throw away? Well, first of all, sexual immorality, impurity. He's not done. He says, then shameful passions. Shameful passions and evil desires overlap. There's much similarity here. The shameful passions deal with a state of mind that's constantly engaging sexual ideas. It's longing, and one scholar states that the person who cultivates this kind of appetite will always find an opportunity to satisfy it. In Romans 1, Paul utilizes homosexuality as just one particular sin, but he's utilizing it to show how man has turned God's created order upside down. And it's interesting, this is the term that is used. They have a, a lustful passion, women for women, men for men. And you know, the, the horrible thing of Romans 1 is the line that says, and so God gave them over to their own desires. It's the worst thing that could happen, isn't it? For God to say, have at it. I've warned you, I've tried to prevent it, but, but have at it. And so here we see this term being used of shameful passion and evil desire, again, is very similar. Psalm 51, David prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God. The shameful passions, the evil desires, they come in what we surf on the internet. <laughs> Even particular magazine racks that you might walk by in the grocery store. These need to be put away, don't they? One of the greatest disguises, I should say, the subtle sins in the church that's seldom talked about is pornography. But it's alive and well. It's there. And, and Paul says, no, 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 no. Those things are not associated with the new man. Those are to be put off. Right? The, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the sinful passions, the evil desire. And then he goes to greed, which seems a little odd in the list. But greed is often associated with sexual sin in the New Testament. It's, I mean, think about it. What is it? It's wanting more to satisfy your pleasures. It's interesting that it's, it's, some argue it's what drives the rest of the nine commandments. Thou shalt not. <laughs> uh, it's greed which drives it all. A covetous person will dishonor God. They'll take the Lord's name in vain. They'll steal. They'll commit. They'll do whatever they need to satisfy self. And, and that's why it's interesting. Look at the text, what he says. And greed, which is what? Idolatry. Because ultimately, what, what is greed doing? It's saying, I am first and foremost. And you remove God out of the equation and say, no, this is what I need. F.F. Bruce in his commentary writes, setting one's affections on earthly things and not on things above. Remember Paul stated this earlier, you're to search the things above, not the things on earth. Therefore, he says, putting of some other object of desire in place which God should occupy in his people's hearts. Because this, this is why it's idolatry. And this is what he's stating here. And so he, he breaks out a little bit out of that list and, and, and greed encompasses really much of this. Is These are things you put off. And this is why, verse 6, and here again is that warning. It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And I love it. In the Greek, it's a future present. In other words, it's definite. There's no possibility it might come. Excuse me, you're not going to slip through this. It is going to come. The things 
the wrath of God is coming on the sons, again, of disobedience. The sons of disobedience, we know it, it's, it's used in Romans to refer to those who are enemies of God. God will judge. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, this whole putting on and putting off stuff, it's, it's got to be foreign because you're, you're not identified with Christ. And sadly, Paul's stating, and very clearly here, if you're not in this camp, you're under God's wrath. So there's a way to get from that, and that's to recognize what Christ has done and confess your sin. I challenge you to do that today. But let's go back to the text. So he says, under this, what we're to remove, he says, these things. And he then goes, and he says, verse 7, you lived your lives in this way at one time. This was us. Don't think we're high and mighty and the frozen chosen and forget where God has brought us, right? It's so easy. And, and we talked about legalism uh, a couple weeks ago. And that's the danger, isn't it? Forgetting where Christ has brought us. And he says, no, no, no. He says, don't forget where Christ has brought you. Look at 1 Corinthians. Keep your finger here. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. Or you can hear the text. 1 Corinthians 6. It's such a powerful text, and it fits so well with what we're looking at. Verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There it is. Do not be deceived. And then he goes through. Here's his dirty list, right? The sexual immoral, idolaters, adulterers, passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, the verbally abused, swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you once lived this way. By the way, that should give hope to all of us. Some of them were in that camp. Now you just saw the list, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so, go back to Colossians. Paul says, listen, you, some of you, you, you lived that way, but God has redeemed you. He has restored you. And so, he comes back to this in verse 8. So, put off such things. This is what we need to be doing. And again, we saw the, the filthy five. Now we come, I called it the slimy six, or whatever you want to call it. But we get to this next list and I love what G. Campbell Morgan said about this list. He stated, these are sins that are in good standing. You see, we moved from the sensual, now we're going to move to the rather social sins. And these sins are far more acceptable. <laughs> They're far more subtle and, and far more acceptable, sadly, in the church. Notice the first of these is anger. And you go, wait a minute, we just said in verse 6 that God is wrathful. Why can't we be wrathful? It's the same term. Well, even Ephesians state there's a time to be angry and what? Sin not. Uh, there's a time that we, there is a place for righteous anger. But the use of the term here is referring to an habitual attitude. Aristotle used the term to refer to a dog that barks before knowing whether the person is a friend or a foe. <laughs> You know, that dumb dog just barks nonstop. We have one of those in our neighborhood. I've been praying in precatory prayers. <laughs> yes. That's the idea. You know, you just, you just, your mouth just goes off. And the, the next thing that comes, uh, that's anger. And then you got malice. That's that ill will towards a person. I don't know if it's jealousy, if it's bitterness, self-centeredness. But you're looking to undermine them, undercut them. 
A third thing that he lists is slander. And this is interesting. This is the idea of doing harm through either a lie or gossip. It's subtle, but it's in the church as well. I have a prayer request. I know you would like to know about this person. <laughs> Careful, right? Uh, it, it can be very subtle in the church. And he's saying, careful of your anger, your rage, your malice, your slander. And then he comes to abusive language. This term only occurs once in the entire New Testament. The, the 50 cent word is called hapax legomena. I won't test you over that, but there's the, the term for it uh, when it only occurs once. It is found outside of the New Testament. It refers to filthy, dirty talk. Dirty speech, obscene, foul mouth, right? You all know the kind of we're talking. And it's interesting because later Paul's going to state in, in Colossians 4 that our speech needs to be seasoned with salt, not manure. <laughs> and the idea here is that this abusive language, these are clothes that should have been kept over here. They are not part of the new wardrobe that we have in Christ and then similar to greed, he breaks out and separate. He says, do not lie. He says, you need to put this off. In fact, the term is extremely strong here. Unlike the other reference to putting off, here it's, it's the idea of stripping it off immediately. Right? He says, do not lie. And by the way, the way it's worded, it's clear. Do not go on lying. They're already doing it. He says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man and with all its practices. Who's the father of lies? Satan. A lie is any misrepresentation of the truth, even if the words are accurate. We're referring to verbal and nonverbal, aren't we? And I love the line, half a fact is a whole lie. You can do the math. Right? And so, you know, I, I think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he say? I'm a man that's done some bad things. I'm a man who looks at things I shouldn't. No, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And you look at this slimy six that's listed here, and much of this deals with the tongue, doesn't it? Ouch. <laughs> at least for me, ouch. Paul says, this should not be. This is, this is who you are. You're not this. That is what you used to be. And so he says, strip this off. Do not lie. Take it off. And then he says, he gives us two reasons. So the first Roman numeral in your notes is our apparel must be updated. The second is our apparel must align with our status. He says in verse 10, having been clothed, and there's the term, it can be used figuratively, it can be used uh, in a literal sense, in Acts it's used in a literal sense, and figuratively I think of, I got a couple texts here, Isaiah 51, you're to be clothed with moral and religious strength. Psalm 132, the priests are to be clothed with righteousness Psalm 93, the Lord is robed in majesty. And so using this metaphor, Paul says we are to be clothed with the new man. It's, it's our new identity. This is who we are. Our wardrobe has changed, hasn't it? 
You know, it'd be ludicrous if you took a fella out and you bought him a brand new suit. I don't know, Hugo Boss, Armani. You bought them the top of the line suit and they go home and they don't wear it. Instead, they wear the, the sports jacket they have in the closet. It's got a hole in the elbow. Well, that, that'd be crazy. But let's face it. It's hard to eliminate an article of clothing from our wardrobe when it has a lot of meaning. Now, that piece of clothing, I have a lot of memories with that. <laughs> or that, I just feel really good. It fits me so well. And Paul says, careful. Those clothes need to be eliminated. Our apparel is linked with a new man. A man, he says here, a new man that's being renewed. What's the term referring to? It's referring to sanctification. It's a 50 cent word, but it means set apart. This is, this is, we're to be set apart. We're being renewed. And notice in knowledge, remember Paul's prayer that you might grow in the knowledge of God's will? That's why. And so that we might grow in the renewing of the mind and the study of the word and the power of the spirit. He says, so renew the knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. So the means, how? It's through knowledge that we are renewed as we model the new clothing. The purpose, it's seen here in that latter part of that verse, because we are doing it according to the image of the one who created. Who is the creator? Go back to Colossians 1, lest you forget. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. The old man is associated with Adam and all the sin from the garden. The new man is associated with the new Adam, that is Christ. And this is what he's trying to highlight here is this is the pattern that we follow one scholar states that God's rec uh, recreation of man is in the pattern of Christ. And so I ask you, would Christ be caught dead in what you're wearing? If you know Christ as your Savior, would he be wearing what you're wearing right now? <laughs> Interesting thought, isn't it? Do an assessment of your wardrobe. Our apparel must be updated. Our apparel must align with our status, and finally, our apparel must reflect the standard, which is Christ. Notice in verse 11, since there is neither Greek nor Jew, it's interesting that he should start with a Greek and not a Jew. Uh, remember, Paul stated his ministry is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I think that's because our audience is predominantly Greek. Circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian or Scythian, and this parallel is difficult because Scythians are also barbarians, but they are the, the slaved barbarians. They are the, the less couth barbarians. Slave or free, what's he saying? The ethnic, the social, the religious, the cultural barriers have all been eliminated because he says, because Christ is all and is in all. Reminds me of Galatians chapter 3, where Paul states there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ. We're talking soteriologically here. He's not, elsewhere Paul clearly lays out distinction and function and in roles. We're not talking about that. 
But when it comes to the things of the Lord, soteriologically, that is, of salvation, etc., there's no inequality. Use a double negative. Uh, we are all equal in Christ. This idea that we are a new man, often I hear it in an individual connotation. But I think Daryl Bach is correct in this article that he wrote on the new man and the old man. That What we're dealing with is a communal idea. He writes, the new man refers to the new community in Christ. This, we are identified as one. And that's why I think Paul breaks out in verse 11, which might seem at first odd. But what he's saying is we're all together in this. And, and thus, Bach states, by joining people to himself, they are saved. In other words, the new man is the church. It's the new community in Christ. And so we focus on the new community around Christ and our unity. And I would argue the danger is to focus on diversity. <laughs> if we do that, we will minimize the role of Christ. Careful. And we will foster division. I had the opportunity for a year to attend Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship down in Dallas with Tony Evans years ago. And I love the message that he often would say, we are, we are one in Christ we are unified because of the cross. We will not focus on diversity. And that's the idea here, that we are one in Him. And so the implications, first in your notes there, is our renewal in Christ is communal. The ethnic, the social, the religious, and cultural barriers have been, been removed as we are a new man. Secondly, the Christian life cannot be lived in solitary confinement. A Christian cannot live an authentic Christian life, I would argue, without being part of a, a vibrant group of believers. Next week is Charter Sunday. Yay! Uh, I'm excited about us coming together officially as a body of believers and, and launching this new ministry. This is what it's about. As I, I think I mentioned this before, I think COVID has been one of Satan's greatest tools to isolate the community, to isolate people from one another. The Christian life cannot be lived alone. Third implication, each believer represents Christ and the community. In other words, you can say, you can't say, well, I'm in my room, I can wear whatever I want. No, you cannot. You're part of the new man. You're part of the community. And sin is individually affects the entire community. That's the danger. And, and we wear Christ. And so people should see Christ in us. And so each believer represents Christ and the community. And finally, the new community of Christ focuses on loving one another. This is where Paul's going to go starting in verse 12, and that's why I've, I've called it a two-part series because he's going to talk about what do you put on. I mean, we've dealt a lot with what do you take off of you know, Debbie Downer sermon. But where do we go? Well, that's where we're headed. That's why I love the motto of this church, loving God and loving others. That's the new man. That's the apparel we put on, right, as we look. And so he says, listen, these are the things to be eliminated and, and, and being part of a community, et cetera, what that entails. Because again, that last line, Christ is all and in all. I love the Greek. 
Do you know the last word in the Greek of that verse? It's literally, in all and in all, Christ. It's what bookends the entire discussion. Christ is the end all. It's absolutely everything is entailed in him. And what does that mean? Number one, it means he must be preeminent. He will be preeminent. That's what we saw in Colossians 1.18. All things in him have preeminence. God may be and must be all in all. And that's the idea here. And secondly, Christ provides, for those of you who know him and are identified with him, Christ provides the source for peace, grace, and hope. Think about it. This one who is in us and we are in him. Who is this one? (laughs) He's the almighty. He's the anchor. He's the lion of Judah. He's the great high priest. He's the door. He's the vine. He's the alpha and omega. He is the great I am. And we are in him. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, it's dynamite. If you've not read it, you need to. It just came out. He writes, whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, (laughs) feeling that way, read the news, COVID, elections, it's heavy. I just heard this week, Lucy Swindoll, some of you know her, Chuck Swindoll's sister, went to be home with the Lord, died of COVID. She was a dear lady. You feel like things are crumbling around you? Ah, wherever you feel stuck, (laughs) undeflectable, his heart for you, the real you, is gentle and lowly. So go to him. Place your life where you feel most defeated. He is there. He he lives there, right there, and his heart is for you. Not on the other side of it, but in the darkness, and gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. If you knew his heart, you would. (laughs) That's our Christ. That's our Savior right? He says, come. I, I, because I am identified with you. You're identified with me. Christ is all and in all. So this morning, we need to recognize, if you know Jesus as your Savior, who you are in Christ. This isn't this battle going on between a little demon and a little angel. No, no, no. You're already over here. The danger is, is coming back and, and, and picking up a few articles of clothing and saying, mm, I really liked how that was. No, you need to bag those suckers and throw them in the dumpster. Don't even give them to Goodwill. No one should be wearing them, <laughs> right? Martin Lloyd-Jones once stated, holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are due to because of what we are already are. We are holy. We are seen in Christ's righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so this morning, you're part of a new community. So this week, as you get dressed for school, for work, or whatever your activity is of the day, and you go through, flipping through the hangers, I didn't read you the stats of how many clothes people don't wear that are hanging in their closet. I thought that was too depressing. But as you flip through the clothes or go through the drawers... Spend some time, what am I wearing spiritually today? (laughs) What should I not be wearing as one who's part of a new community, a new identity with this one, right? Father, (laughs) these are convicting words. It's so easy to 
go to the familiar, to pick up the clothes that we felt comfortable in, clothes that, that have memories. And you're saying, no, 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 no. That's the old man. We're now in Christ. Christ is all and he's in all. And, and, and our identity is now over here. Thank you, Father, for saving us. Thank you for giving us this new identity. And Lord, we need your strength. We need your power to live accordingly. Help us to have apparel that reflects your son. Well, thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.